0: Welcome to the 11th edition of the About IBD podcast. I'm your host, Amber Tresca. I have an excellent episode for you today with Dr. Tiffany Taft of Oak Park Behavioral Medicine. She is a clinical psychologist and she specializes in treating people with chronic illness such as IBD. I spoke to her specifically about dealing with stress. You are going to enjoy her so much that... You're going to want her to be your therapist. But hey, if you're in the Chicago area, that could actually happen. Here is episode 11 on stress relief with the amazing Dr. Tiffany Taft. Hi, Dr. Taft. Good morning. Thanks so much for talking with me today. I'm hoping that we can discuss stress relief for people who have IBD.
1: Sounds like a great topic to me.
0: Dr. Taft. where do you start with patients in your office as far as stress relief goes?
1: I think the first place that we start is a little bit of education on the role of stress in IBD. Um, This is a bit of a debated topic. And so I want patients to understand why I think stress management, stress relief is important for them. I should add, I see patients, you know, of all different diagnoses in terms of chronic illness. And this is something I recommend across the board because stress is not going to be good for any chronic condition, including IBD.
0: Yeah, and I think I'm really a good person to talk with about this because I'm pretty bad with the stress relief. Even when I take a vacation, I'm the person that's saying, let's get up, let's go, let's go see a museum. We need to get there when it opens and that type of thing. And I don't meditate um, sort of traditionally. I do sort of a moving meditation So for someone like me, who's a little bit more on the rejecting side of this type of thing, is there some simple things that I could start with to sort of start myself down this stress relief path?
1: Absolutely. And this is something I hear a lot of. I don't have time. It's I've tried in the past and I wasn't really able to get into it. And there is a lot of talk these days about meditation and mindfulness is another term that's being used. The tech industry out in California has actually really taken this uh, these practices on as part of their business model. so they're they've got a lot of hype going on right now, and that's the pros and cons to that because it's purported to do probably more than it can. But I think for us, as people living with uh, IBD, the idea is to start with something simple and then work from there. And really at the base of all of these relaxation, stress management techniques is uh, taking some time for yourself. We're talking 10, 15 minutes to start. And then just doing something that is calming or relaxing for you. And usually uh, something that involves some peaceful sounds or music or uh, imagery or things of that nature, plus some what we call uh, diaphragmatic breathing or, or deep breathing exercises. So that's kind of the basics that I start with with people and then we'll work our way up from there and see what works best for them.
0: Do you recommend that somebody start with a technology-based stress relief, such as an app?
1: There's definitely a lot of apps out there these days, which are, most of them are quite good. And some are free, which I like. And some are a one-time purchase, and then some are a subscription. And so what I'll start with someone is uh, basic exercise that we do in the office together. So I teach them how to do diaphragmatic breathing. And then I can either give them one of my own recordings that I have for my my practice, or I'll direct them to one of the, the free apps, you know, that they can try out. And then they come back and they let me know how it went.
0: Yeah, free. I think people like free. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And I know there's a lot of them out there. And I think it's probably a discovery process that you need to go through and find the one that works for you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the uh, the Veterans Administration, the VA, actually has come up with quite a few good free applications that I often recommend. And they have one for mindfulness, they have one for insomnia. And so we, as people not Uh, in the VA have access to these apps. So people usually will start with one of those and they have simple instructions and some of that education piece that I mentioned earlier. And um, people will start there and then we'll talk about the ones that maybe have a subscription service like Calm or Headspace are two that I often recommend. Uh, Bootify is another one that I like. And it really depends on the preference of the person. Um, But the technology is so uh, advanced at this point that it's almost like a buffet. You can kind of go up and try out one, say, no, I don't really like that, and then try a different one. And even the ones that have a charge tend to have a free trial period or a free number of sessions that you can do before you have to invest.
0: I've heard a lot about this mindfulness. And how would you describe that?
1: So mindfulness is a concept that comes from Buddhism. So we here in the United States have finally, after about 2,000 years, uh, adopted uh, tenets that have been used in India, China, Asia for millennia. And we are using mindfulness here in psychology now, Um It's been pioneered by a a psychologist, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, and he has brought this concept to the United States, and the basics of it is being present in the moment that you're in. So we are on autopilot a lot. I go through my day, and half the time I don't even remember what I did or how I got to the end of the day. You know, a phenomenon of this is when you're driving somewhere and then all of a sudden you're somewhere, you're there and you don't even remember driving. Our brains have an innate ability to kind of go on autopilot and we're not really paying attention to what we're doing in the moment. We're somewhere else. So mindfulness is a concept of bringing us to whatever activity we are currently engaged in and not really thinking about other things that we have to do. Or things that happened before. I am present focused is the the basic tenets of that.
0: That's a huge problem. Um, I think for <laughs> myself personally, there is that. I always joke that, well, gosh, I could tell you you know, something that I was doing in 1984, but I can't tell you what I had for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And so for someone, and I think most of us are in this situation, you've got so much going on in your life. You're trying to manage this chronic illness. Plus, we're all uh, wives, husbands, parents, you know, uh, we have our careers. So where do I start in a small way to sort of get that mindfulness going and, and, and make it a habit?
1: And the first exercise that I usually have someone do for mindfulness is to take it some time every day and go by a window in their home or even at work Um, if they have the time to spend and take about 15 minutes and just look out the window. And some of this stuff sounds kind of silly when I propose it to people. And I do, we do kind of have a couple laughs about it because it feels so strange to say to someone, I just want you to go look out the window and I don't want you to think about anything else. I just want you to notice the trees, the sky, the clouds, the buildings, you know, whatever is outside of your window and take notice of it and just then notice how you feel in your body. And then when the thoughts come, because they will, you just let them pass and you go, no, not right now. I'm going to look at the trees, you know, the colors, really getting specific. And that is where we start to help people not be thinking about the future, not be thinking about the past or any other things that might be on their mind. And that's a basic mindfulness exercise. And then we go from there.
0: And to me, that actually sounds wonderful, but also difficult at the same time to sort of just let everything go and be present in nature. So would you recommend you know, you're going to have, I think, false starts with this, right? So if you feel as though it's not working, um, would you say, well, maybe that's not the thing for you? Or would you say, push, you know, push through a little bit and sort of just keep trying it for a certain amount of time?
1: Yeah, I always recommend people give it a good two weeks or so before we pull the plug on something. If you've never really done anything like this before, on a regular basis, it's going to feel strange. It's going to feel even difficult to do. Something as simple as taking 10 slow, deep breaths or looking out the window or just sitting and not really thinking about much sounds simple as I say it, but as people sit down to try to do these things, they realize quite quickly that it's not as easy as it sounds and people will get frustrated and give up on it. A lot of times when I bring this up with patients, they're like, oh, I've tried that before. It didn't work. I hear that quite often. And so I'll talk to them about, well, what did you do? What happened? Um, How often did you practice? And usually I'll hear, I only tried it a couple of times, and then I gave up. And that is not enough to build that habit and get your brain used to doing things in a different way. So I'll encourage about two weeks or so And then after that, if someone comes in and is like, this is just not doing it for me, then we'll try something else.
0: And so this is something that's really very, I don't want to say easy, um, but simple. But simple does not mean easy. So that's something that people can start with. But what are some more intensive things that you think would be worth spending your time and energy to pursue for stress relief, because I do know that there is evidence that certain stress relief techniques can help us with our chronic illnesses.
1: Yes, the research on stress in chronic illness is pretty vast, but we'll stick with it in inflammatory bowel disease. And uh, my answer to that is it's mixed, Some studies will say that these interventions, whether it's yoga, meditation, mindfulness, um, practices, they've all been researched in inflammatory bowel disease. And some will say, yes, we see uh, an effect. And some will say, nothing happened. It didn't help. It didn't change anything. And that has to do with a lot of things, including variability in the quality of the research study, So some people do more rigorous control and design in the study while others are a little bit looser. Um, Some people will look at different outcomes. They'll look at actual inflammation markers as an outcome versus maybe uh, anxiety levels or or quality of life. So you really have to look through the research on it to understand why it's mixed and just because it's mixed doesn't mean that there isn't something there and so my take on it is it's a good practice to get into because it can help with multiple things going on when you're living with IBD including pain intensity, quality of life, um, anxiety, depression, so all the mental health benefits that we see from things like this ring true in IBD patients. So I would um, encourage people to try because the good news is, is these techniques for the vast majority of people do not have any negative side effects and they are going to take some time to learn. But if they are effective, they can really be incorporated into the management of your disease.
0: So that's a really good point that the sort of mentality of, well, it can't hurt. um, Would you say that that's sort of true across the board? Is there anything that you would caution someone Mm -hmm. about um, going down a path that maybe there could be a harm or it could even have been proven to be ineffective in the past?
1: Yes. So a lot of times people will say with these techniques, there's no harm. There's no risk. And I say to people, there's very little chance of harm or risk, but there are a certain percentage of people, it's small, um, probably around 5% or so, who actually can't do these techniques. They can't meditate, for example. um, And they may even have a negative experience. So some people will have what we call rebound anxiety, when they try to do deep breathing exercises or they try to meditate, they actually feel more anxious. They feel um, uncomfortable. It's not a relaxing experience for them. And that's a real thing. It's rare. And we have to decide when we're trying these things if it's something that we should try and work through and see if it goes away or if this is going to be something that Um, is not going to work for someone. And really the largest risk factor for that, as we know today, is a a trauma history, uh, a PTSD history, that sometimes doing a meditation exercise can trigger PTSD symptoms. And so we want to be real careful of that and doing it in a more controlled way uh, instead of just having people kind of go out on their own. Um, and practice, and have a bad experience because we certainly don't want that to happen. So it's safe, effective, but there are um, there can be some negative outcomes if we're not mindful of these risk factors.
0: And so, when we're talking about IBD and stress, I think because uh, especially for those of us that are older patients, we've heard a lot through our lives. That stress causes IBD, which we know now is absolutely not true. And so I think certain people might have um, a little bit of a visceral response that, well, stress is not really part of my disease, and therefore I don't see why a stress uh, reducing technique would be
1: helpful to me. And,
0: you know, what would you, how would you sort of coach a patient through that sort of thinking?
1: I do hear that from people. I've been hearing that for about the last 10 years. And it's it's an interesting thought. And I really work with people on that idea that stress will not affect their IBD because physiologically, every person is susceptible to stress. So when we're in a stressful situation, whether it's positive, like a really exciting event, or what we typically think of as stress as something negative, you know, work pressure, family, you know, strife, or, or whatever is making you feel tense and upset is what we usually think of when we think of stress. But stress in our body and in our brain is processed in the same centers or same parts of the brain, whether it's a positive stress or a negative stress. And we are wired in a way that that, those parts in our brain that manage stress and emotion are wired directly into our digestive system. They also influence our immune system function. So physiologically, it would be very odd for a patient with IBD to not be impacted by stress in some way. That doesn't mean that because I'm stressed out, I'm automatically going to get diarrhea or pain. It can be more insidious than that. It can kind of be working in the background and maybe making it a little bit more difficult for the medications to be doing their job or other things that aren't as readily noticeable. I think people reject stress when it's an implication that the reason you're sick today, the reason you're in pain or you're having a lot of symptoms is because you can't handle your stress. And who I would be offended by that if someone said that to me. Um, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying this is the physiology of it, and we really can't turn it off. And so we have to learn how to manage it through these different techniques to bring down that nervous system energy, that, that um, tension in the body, because it goes to the weakest point. And so if I have rheumatoid arthritis, it's going to go to my joints. If I have inflammatory bowel disease, it's going to go to my gut. If I have migraine headaches, it's going to go to my head. And that's how we know stress operates. So um, that's what I tell patients when they come in and they are, are pretty adamant that stress doesn't really play a role. And, you know, they tend to be... More receptive to that explanation because it destigmatizes the idea that um, you're doing something wrong to cause your symptoms.
0: Right, that idea that you're doing something wrong. And I think even seeking out help for stress relief or uh, seeking out a, a, a professional such as you, it may almost feel a little bit like a failure um, because I think uh, people with IBD tend to be. Um, Very sort of go getters, you know, in their daily lives, and they sort of just power through things. And so, admitting to yourself that, wow, I need to take some time for some stress relief, or I me, I may even need to seek some professional help on this. It's not a failure.
1: No, not at all. And I think you're you're correct. I do see a lot of people with IBD are a little bit more Type A, and just are more. Uh, driven and push themselves more in terms of getting stuff done. And one of the things I'll hear from people a lot is I don't have time to relax, which I th- is such a funny sentence. But I've said that to myself. you know, I don't want to sit here like I'm, you know, um, a Zen Buddhist in my meditation practices. We all prioritize everything else and then ourselves. I think that's a, a cultural issue in the United States and elsewhere, but really here in the US, we are uh, very driven to accomplish. And I feel like if we can incorporate stress relief, stress management, short activities, as I said, 20 minutes a day um, into our whole picture, we'll actually be able to do more or do what we're doing and feel less stressed about it, feel less tense, at the end of the day, because we are unwinding, we are taking some of that pressure off of ourselves through these simple exercises.
0: And so there's a lot, we've talked about a lot of things that people can do at home, sort of by themselves, almost uh, self-directed. But at what point, is there a way for patients to sort of have a benchmark for themselves to realize that, wow, things have maybe gotten far enough that I do need to seek professional help in order to get this stress more under control?
1: Absolutely. I think that line will be different for everybody, but there's some kind of general things to look for. If you try some of these self-directed practices either through an app or there's many websites out there. If you search for cognitive behavioral therapy, if you search for mindfulness, there are, are plenty of resources online that you can use that are, are reputable on your own. If you try that and you're struggling with implementing them, if you're feeling frustrated, kind of throwing your hands up in the air in the idea that I can't do this, that would be um, something that would say, okay, maybe I should seek out someone that can work with me um, to get me on the right track. Other signs to look for are more overt signs of anxiety or depression. So anxiety and depression, subclinical, like we call it, is um, very common in patients with IBD. you are talking about about half of patients experience anxiety and depression on a, um, below the official diagnosis of either of those. We call that subclinical anxiety and depression. And so we know that mental health uh, issues are uh, a problem for a lot of IBD patients. So what do I look for when it's not just anxiety, but anxiety that's starting to affect my day-to-day life, really having a hard time concentrating Having a hard time slowing your mind down, your mind's all over the place, jumping from topic to topic, difficulty sleeping, whether it's falling asleep at night or staying asleep because you just can't turn your brain off, you know, unable to really get what you need to get done in your life because your mind is so preoccupied with worry and those types of thoughts. So that would be something that would, I would say, would trigger someone to come in to. someone like me for depression not your normal sadness um, but really feeling hopeless feeling like nothing is really enjoyable anymore your thinking is quite negative and you're withdrawing and isolating yourself from others those are some of the more red flags uh, signs that you might need to seek a professional to help with the depression
0: And when someone does come into your office, I think there's a feeling that um, when you do seek out professional help in this way, that it's sort of something that you have to do forever. But I know from speaking with you in the past that that's not necessarily the case. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit so that people can understand the trajectory of how you would start down this path and then that there can be a point that you're you know, you're at a more stable situation and then you can sort of go off on your own. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's different approaches to psychology and psychotherapy. Traditionally, um, back in you know the, the 20th century, earlier 20th century, it was more of this long term multiple visits a week kind of psychoanalysis approach. That It still happens today, but more and more therapists today are taking a briefer model to therapy, and that falls into treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is something that we do in our practice, Um, other more present-focused techniques that are looking to increase somebody's skills and really making them their own therapist. So one of the goals I have for my patients is I want to impart all of this knowledge that I have on stress and how it impacts your disease and how to manage anxiety and how to keep depression, you know, at bay here, let's learn together. I will teach you these. You go out and practice them in between our visits, which are typically once a week and then come back and then report how you're doing. And then we'll, we'll talk you know, through things while we're together. So it's a very active treatment. It's a very, I want people to practice and get good at uh, these skills so they don't have to come see me anymore. And I would say the average amount of time that it takes someone to do that is about eight to 10 visits. There's a range, right? People can come for a year. Some people come for a month. It really depends on where they are, and how quickly they're able to make the adjustments and how complicated their story is. But I would say on average, most uh, therapists who do cognitive behavioral therapy are, are doing it in you know less than six months. So we try to keep it short because we don't want people to rely on us. We want people to be able to go out and do do these things on their own and use them every day. Uh, to keep their stress, you know, and, and other issues um, at bay.
0: So we actually saw each other at Digestive Disease Week this year. Yes. Which was amazing. <laughs> and um, there were a lot of presentations on mental health and IBD this year, I thought. And one of the ones that I sat in on talked about, I believe it was a half-day uh, um workshop that patients went to, or maybe it was some of them were two days in a row. I think they try a lot of different things. And if patients see this kind of thing available in their area, what do you think? Is this something that um, people should definitely be asking their physicians about? And how effective would it be to go talking about time and, you know, to go to like a half day or a full day session on a Saturday and then have it have a pretty significant effect on your overall health. I mean, that sounds like a really um, amazing prospect to me.
1: Yeah, the, the gastroenterologists, I'm in Chicago. And so we have gastroenterologists here at some of the larger hospitals that are starting to put on these kind of Saturday workshops for patients And we, as the psychologists in the field, have been pushing them to integrate in mental health uh, to those talks. And we are very happy to see that it's starting to really take off. I think as you go to these conferences in the coming years, you're going to see even more mental health integration into IBD care. It is um, becoming something that gastroenterologists are paying more attention to. With that being said, there are going to be some doctors that are not very in tune with this. I may even um, be dismissive. I do hear that from some patients. So my advice on that is even if your gastroenterologist doesn't put a lot of stock into it personally, um, there are many people in the field who do. And you can seek them out and learn from them, including uh, through webcasts, Peter Higgins, up at the uh, University of Michigan has a great IBD school video series. There are, are gastroenterologists that are definitely putting out more content. David Rubin at the University of Chicago are putting out these programs. I think if you have access to these, whether it's online or in person, to definitely go and start there and learn about your particular situation as stress applies to your disease think through what do i want to do what will what might work for me and then go home use the technology that is available and try it and then if you're still struggling then you can seek out the help of the professionals that would kind of be the the series of events that i would recommend people to do if they're they're considering you know making some changes in this area
0: Obviously, you're focused on IBD and how it integrates into our mental health. How would a patient go about finding a therapist that will work for them, especially for people that aren't necessarily in an area where there's a big IBD center or where they're going to find uh, a therapist uh,
1: such as yourself? That's an excellent question. <laughs> we get that all the time. Um the blunt answer to that is there are not enough therapists who understand inflammatory bowel disease. Um, but there are good therapists out there who I think can learn and can work with IBD patients even if they have not had much exposure to the disease. So. I recommend people to go on um, psychology today has a therapist finder database website that you can search based on your zip code, but you need to be able to kind of read through because you're going to get a bunch of profiles and look for specific things that will make the person more likely to be a good experience because people do have bad experiences with therapists who don't understand IBD and I don't want that, that to happen. Um, so when you look for a therapist, you want to look for people who have been trained in something called health psychology or medical social work. If you want to see a social worker or uh, behavioral medicine, those are all terms that mean the person has done extra training in medical illness. So not just learning about anxiety and depression and other mental health issues, that we do in graduate school, but also learning about the unique issues of people living with medical illnesses. So when you look at the profiles, if someone talks about that specifically, that is someone to really consider seeing. Once you find some people that you might wanna see, then you can call them, and a good therapist will talk to you on the phone before they make you come in for a consultation And you can ask them some questions about how many patients do you see with a medical illness? Have you ever seen a patient with Crohn's disease? Do you know anything about IBD? And they'll be, you know, happy to answer your questions before they set up that consultation. So you can, you know, know before you go into their office kind of what you're walking into. And you can decide if you don't get good answers on the phone, you know, not to make that appointment.
0: So that's really interesting because that was something that I wanted to build on in that not every physician-patient team is going to be a match, and sometimes we need to figure out that we need to move on. And at what point, um, hopefully, you know, that initial phone call will go a long way towards figuring out whether you can work together or not. But at what point does the patient step back and say, I don't really think I'm progressing here and maybe I need to find someone else to work with.
1: I would say the first meeting you'll get a good feel if it's going to be a good fit. Therapy is really a good chunk of its success is based on the, the the fit of the personalities of the people working together. So if you go in and it just doesn't feel comfortable Um, if you don't feel like this is someone that you're going to be able to open up to and share some of these topics these you know maybe things you haven't talked to people about before I would say give it one more try because sometimes you know someone has an off day or it just didn't jive for some reason but if you've gone a couple of times and you're still feeling guarded you don't feel like This person is really hearing you or really understanding you. If they've said some insensitive things about the nature of IBD, you know, that it's psychosomatic, you know, or personality traits. I have heard people have those experiences. It's time to go. Um, So I would say within most people know within two or three visits with a therapist if it's going to be a good fit. And then I think the follow-up to your question is a good fit doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get better. So if you're seeing this person, but it kind of starts to feel like Groundhog Day and nothing is changing, I'm not really doing much here, I don't feel like I'm progressing in my care, you want to have a conversation with the therapist and say, hey, can we change things up here? I don't really feel like I'm getting better. Um And try and make a change of course before just switching therapists. And then if you still are like, yeah, this just isn't the right approach for me and the therapist can't come up with anything different, then uh, it would be time to just make that switch as well.
0: Thanks so much for that advice. I know that you you actually have patients to see today, so I do need to let you go at some point. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we got in uh, the great work that you're doing with uh, your blog and the stuff that you do on social media. So here's your chance to tell us all about what you've got going on and any research that you have. So what's happening in your world, Dr. Taft?
1: Yes. So um, I'll start with the research. We are doing a lot of studies. I'm at Northwestern at uh, Feinberg School of Medicine. I work there part-time in the GI division. I've been there for 13 years. And we are uh, launching a study looking at uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in IBD with Dr. Steve Hanauer, who is actually uh, spearheading that topic, which I thought was really Interesting and exciting that one of the leading IBD specialists in the world has taken note of mental health issues, and we are going to look at just what are what's the prevalence of PTSD in IBD. This has not been done. And also what some risk factors might be for the development of PTSD. So we're kicking that study off. So I will be recruiting people uh, via social media. And if uh, people want to fill out our questionnaires, that would be wonderfully helpful. In the next few weeks, that'll be live. We also just wrapped up a study looking at something called food-related quality of life. So we talk about quality of life a lot in IBD. And some people over in England came up with the idea of let's look at it as it's related to eating. You know, all the stuff that goes along with the social aspects of eating Um, food anxiety, you know, all that complicated stuff that we run into as IBD patients with food. So that'll be, uh, we'll be writing a few uh, papers from that. So that'll be coming out hopefully in the next few months. So we got a lot of exciting stuff going on over at Northwestern. And then in my practice, we are actively um, seeing many patients with IBD and other digestive illnesses, and we just hired a new psychologist, a pediatric psychologist, and we try to keep up to date on Twitter and Facebook, and we do have a blog, as you mentioned, and it's at uh, the Blogspot um, blog, and it's our initials of our practice, so uh, com. And then we're on Twitter at OPBMED, and then on Facebook as well with the same same letters, OPBMED. So check us out if you can. We try to keep it up to date, write articles on different um, experiences as um, both patients. Stephanie and I are both IBD patients. And then also as the, uh, the mental health providers that we are, as well. So we try and mix it up a little bit and give both perspectives on our social media.
0: And thank you so much for providing all of the resources that you do for people with IBD. I really recommend that everyone follow you on social media, because you're definitely in the fight with us. And I really appreciate it. And I especially appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk with me this morning, after dealing with traffic and you know, <laughs> patients coming into the office, and all of this happening, and but in this way we can reach a lot more people and hopefully get some IBD patients down the road, you know, myself included, down this road to um, some stress relief because, you know, gosh, we all need it, don't we?
1: We do, myself included. So it's starting small and giving it time. I think is my my last tidbit of advice on implementing whatever relaxation techniques people decide to try.
0: I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna print that out. I think I'm gonna put it in the show notes. <laughs> maybe I'll make a PDF or like a, a graphic for Facebook or something because I, good. maybe I'll even put it on my wall in front of my desk because I think that I need to apply that to my life as well. Start small and stick with it. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much, Dr. Taft.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Special thanks to Dr. Taft for taking some time to talk with me about stress relief and to let us know that we're not failures if we're finding ourselves needing a little extra help in this regard. I hope that you're able to take the ideas from this podcast and apply them to your life because I want you to be living the best life possible, even though you have a diagnosis of IBD. I appreciate your listening. I hope that if someone has shared this podcast with you, that you will share it with someone else in turn. The best way to keep me going on this is to subscribe in iTunes or on Google Play or wherever it is that you are listening to podcasts. Thanks so much. And remember, I want you to know more about IBD.